G'day guys, welcome to episode number 8 with James Krieger. James is the founder of Weightology Weekly and has a master's degree in nutrition, along with a second master's degree in exercise science. Along with his studies of nutrition and exercise, he's a scientist, author, and a speaker in the field of exercise and nutrition. I've personally been following James for five years uh, since he started up Weightology Weekly and even had the pleasure of meeting James in Sydney at the Bropocalypse. Not to mention, and most importantly, James is a massive Yangby Malmsteen, the Swedish guitarist fan. So I'm very excited to have James on this podcast today, <laughs> and I'm sure we're going to get along famously. Welcome, James. <laughs> thanks for having. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Not a problem. So, James, the first thing I wanted to ask you was regarding your role in the fitness industry, because there's obviously a huge gap between the science and the realm of evidence and the research, and then the lay person and your personal trainers and your everyday gym goers. Your goal, you've mentioned in the past, is to bridge that gap. And mm -hmm. what do you see to be the major obstacles between when you are trying to bridge that gap? I think, I think the hard part is there's a lot of nuances to research that I think can be hard to get across to someone who has no background in science. You know, there's, uh, cause too many people want to take a study and, and either, you know, just make a blanket statement about it, you know, or something like that. You know, a lot of people, it's hard for, to get people to understand the limitations of research sometimes. Uh, I mean, you see it with the media, you know, when the media reports on science and research, they usually just do a terrible job of it. Um, <laughs> and, and so, so yeah, there's a lot of challenges there in, in trying to, to bridge that gap to people that, that don't have the background, you know, so it's like, how do you, you know, it's like, how do you bring it down to their level without being, uh, without oversimplifying it to the point where it's not correct, you know, and so that's the challenge I see sometimes. And we know that, you and I know that science is the gold standard. But there are many situations where science cannot yet fully explain the mechanisms behind a phenomenon, uh, such as metabolic adaptation and refeeds. Why is it? Why is it that we should always look to science first? Um, because the, the reason is, is otherwise, if you don't, I mean, people could just make make anything up that they want to, you know, <laughs> and make it remound, sound remotely scientific. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because on my way to the apocalypse, um, on my plane, Brett was on my airplane. I actually didn't know it. I didn't even know he was going to be on my plane at first. And, and I was, um, I think I, I, I got up to kind of stretch my legs and I actually saw him like over on the other side of the airplane. And so I went and, and chatted with him and we were talking and we were talking we were like, as like, you know, if we really wanted to scam people, we could, cause we could just make something up that just, just had, had remotely sound scientific and people would probably totally eat it and eat, totally buy into it. You know, and of course we ethically, we would, you know, he and I would never do something like that, but it, it would be really easy to do. Um, and so I think that's why you got to go, you really got to go with the science first. Cause otherwise, like I said, people can just make up anything. I mean, that's why you have so many, so many of these quote unquote gurus in the industry that just make stuff up and, and nobody, Nobody challenges them on it because they don't have the background to challenge them on it. So, Yeah, that's a brilliant response. And in terms of the current body of evidence relating to body composition, what do you see to be the major area that we need to or gap that we need to fill in terms of fat loss, nutrition, and muscle growth? Is there anything that really uh, shines through to you as being like something that we just need to know more about this? I would say, I'd say there's still a lot to learn about muscle hypertrophy. I, I would say we know quite a bit about fat loss. Um, you know, there, there's nothing, you know, over the past year or two, I, I haven't seen anything that I would say was really groundbreaking from a fat loss perspective. You know, um, you know, we, 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 I think we've got that pretty much down, you know, that type of stuff is more getting down to the nuances rather of, of, you know, of, 
you know, what types of strategies work for certain types of people and things like that. I think that's where that can go. But I think from hypertrophy, there's still way, there's still so much to learn. Uh, you know, I mean, just, and I think there's so much to learn because there are so many ways you can design a training program, right? I mean, yeah. there, there's an infinite number of ways of designing a training program. So really, it gives you an infinite weight number of things you can study. Mm-hmm. And so there's still a lot to learn. I, I, I always have ideas going through my mind. I'm always kind of shooting ideas back and forth with, with Brad Schoenfeld on, on possible research ideas. Uh, you know, um, I mean, finally, we're starting to see some studies come out, you know, on drop sets, you know, yeah. even though they've been used by bodybuilders and stuff for years and years, there was never really any data on them. And now we're finally getting some data. Um, you know, there was a study just published that I reviewed. Um, there's another study that I know is going to be published at some point um, uh, that I've seen, but, I, you know, I can't really give the details on it because it's not published yet, but uh, that's another study on drop sets. So um, there's still more work that needs to be done on training volume. You know, Brad and I, we published our meta-analysis, but, uh, you know, there's one of the things we found that there still wasn't really – much data on training subjects and, and looking at the dose response in terms of training volume and things like that. So, you know, there's work that needs to be done in that area. I could, you know, there's more work that can be done on training frequency, you know, because, you know, most training frequency studies look at two, you know, one, two, three days per week. But what about training frequencies of four or five, six days per week, you know? Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot, I think, that, yeah. that needs to be looked at still. There are definitely many ways to skin the proverbial cat when it comes to building muscle and muscle hypertrophy. So you mentioned that if there, you know, you've spoken to Brad about studies that you want to conduct. What is what are those studies? What would be the ideal study that you would be able to, you know, start to fill in those little pieces that are missing? Well, I would love to do a study, another a, a dose response training volume study on trained subjects. There really hasn't been, mm. there hasn't been one done since 1998 or 97. And, uh, you know, there, there, and there were some limitations to the one that was done. So, you know, I, there needs to be a study that, that, you know, has one group perhaps doing low volume, one group doing like a medium volume and another group doing a high volume. Um, and then using, you know, techniques like ultrasound, things like that to actually look at muscle thickness, yeah. um, you know, and tracking, you know, the people over, you know, 10 weeks or so. Um, so, I mean that's that's a big one I think uh, that's a big piece missing in the literature uh, that can still be done and then I would like I said with training frequency I would like to see some tests of higher training frequencies um, I know Brad is I think he's doing data collection now on a study comparing you know he did he did his one versus three day per week study you know the bro split yeah. versus the three day per week study um, but now he's got one going. And again, I can't remember if he's already started data collection on it or not, but comparing two days per week to three days per week, you know? Yeah. So that'll be a good, that'll be another good study. But then I would like to see stuff that goes beyond three days per week, you know, four or five days per week, something like that. I think that there's a lot of gaps there that need to be filled. So, so I think, so I'd say volume and frequency are, are definitely big ones that I think uh, still can, a lot can be done on. Yeah, for sure. And look, Let's uh, skip ahead to muscle hypertrophy, seeing as though we're talking about it now. So that paper that you were referring to on the drop sets versus the pyramid sets by yeah. Angleri and others? Yeah. Correct. Um, so let's talk a little bit about advanced overload methods. So that study from memory was drop sets versus yeah. pyramid sets. And the drop sets were like 12 and then two sets of like 80% and then eight and then two sets of 20% of that and then another set of eight with 20% uh, reduction in the intensity, correct? Yeah, yeah, it was something like, so, yeah, there were actually three groups. There was a traditional training group that just yeah. did pretty much straight sets, uh, and then there was a pyramid uh, group uh, that did your typical pyramid up in weights, you know, um, and drop repetitions, and then and then there was the drop set group. And the drop set group, basically, they would do, they would do, um, they would do a drop set, and with, with two, um, with up to two drops. So, um, you know, they would do a set to failure, let's say, you know, like 10 reps or 12 reps to failure, immediately drop the weight by 20%, uh, do more reps to failure, and then immediately drop the weight by 20% again, and then do more reps to failure again. Um, but then they would do multiple sets of that, uh, with rest in between, 
um, you know, um, and what they were trying to do is they were trying to basically volume match to the other, to the traditional training. Um, so they would just do enough drop sets until they matched the volume for the traditional yep. training. So, uh, so that's how it was structured. Yep. And that paper basically, again, um, proved that when volume is equated, hypertrophy is the same, correct? Yeah, yeah, it pretty much showed that that hypertrophy was similar uh, um, between the groups, so. And if that is the case, why would then somebody want to incorporate pyramid sets and drop sets? <clears throat> well, I would say one of the advantages of the drop, you know, one of the things about that, this study, um, the training volume was already pretty high uh, for a single session. I mean, not really high, but it was high enough. Um, I mean, you were talking for the traditional set group, they were doing... Um, uh, I think it was, um, uh, let me, I think it was three to six sets for each, um, exercise, you know, which is six to, you know, or no, three to five sets per exercise, which is six to 10 sets in a session, you know, and then they were doing that twice a week. So, so you're looking at 12 to 20 sets per week. So, um, so they're already doing a decent amount of volume. So I would say what that study says is, if your training volume is already pretty high, then there's probably no advantage to doing drop sets. Yeah, yeah. Um, but where drop sets can be an advantage is from a time efficiency standpoint. Um, yeah, that's Yeah, yeah. You could basically save yourself. You know, if you kind of calculate the numbers out, um, you could you could ba basically drop your training time by a third. You know, doing drop sets. You know, and get the same volume as you would with traditional sets. Um, so there's a time efficiency standpoint there. Um, and then also it could be a, an advantage if you're, you know, let's say you're not training with high volume. Let's say you're training with low volume, you know, either you're doing some type of HIT program, you know, HIT program, or, or you just, you're, you're just time limited in some way. Um, then there may be some really good advantages to doing drop sets because it allows you to get some more volume in, um, with really not much more training time. Um, and I've speculated too, that there could be some, some effects of drop sets and may, they may perhaps mimic vascular occlusion. Um, that's speculation on my part. I, I don't have you know, data to support yeah. that, but uh, it, it's a possible mechanism behind how drop sets might work uh, if you're training with low volume. So, uh, yeah. But if you're already training, if you're already doing a fair number of sets per body part, then yeah, the drop sets probably aren't going to be give you any advantage. And they're just going to make you a lot more fatigued. They're going to be a lot more tiring. So, yeah. so it's kind of up to you. You know, if you got the time to train, and you don't want to, you don't want to be killing yourself in a workout because drop sets can be pretty intense. Um, then you know, just do your straight sets for and just get a fair number of sets in, and then you're fine. So, but if you're limited on time, then drop sets can be great. Yeah, and with drop sets, obviously. You, extending the you know the time under tension and the metabolic fatigue is going to have a yeah. completely type of uh, different adaptation to equating the volume with a heavier load. So how does this influence hypertrophy? So well, could you ask, ask your question again? Uh... So obviously, drop sets are going to have a different adaptation due to just extending the time under tension. Yeah, yeah. How does that vary? The adaptation that is, uh, in comparison to equating the same volume but with heavier loads and without drop sets. Well, I would say that um, it, it, it's hard to say. I mean, based on that one study I just showed, I mean, they they showed similar strength gains and hypertrophy gains, so there wasn't really any difference there. Um, you know, what it suggests to me is there's multiple pathways in, by, behind how your body can basically stimulate hypertrophy. There's tension and then there's metabolic stimulus. And my, my guess is that they probably, they're somewhat redundant, I would say. So, so it kind of overlaps. So um, if you are going for a tension stimulus and you're just doing straight sets, you know, you'll stimulate hypertrophy. Now a drop set, you're not getting quite the tension stimulus, but you're getting the greater metabolic stimulus. Um, but you're going to stimulate similar hypertrophy. So, um, uh, so I would say they, the end result is about the same. It's just the, the, the mechanism may be a little bit different from one to the other. Um, uh, you know, one thing I do think about drop sets is, 
and I think the reason they're more time efficient is I, I like to think in terms of what we, what we might call effective reps. Yep. So what I might be uh, terming an effective rep is, you know, let's say, let's say I'm just doing a set of 10 reps to failure. Well, those first five reps or so um, not are, aren't probably that much of a stimulus. I mean, they're a little bit of a stimulus there, but, but as the, the closer and closer I get to failure, the more effective my reps become, right? And yeah. so the last five reps are probably, maybe we'd call the last five reps the effective reps, for example. Um, and then if I do another set, it's going to be the same thing. So, you know, I do another set of 10, and I've done two sets of 10 now, but really only the last five reps were effective rep on both sets. So basically I did like, let's say, 10 effective reps. Yep. Well, the drop set, you're immediately going into effective reps with each drop, right? And so, yeah. you know, if I do one drop set, you know, let's say the, um, the first, you know, set to failure, yeah, I've got five effective reps there, and then I drop the weight, and if I'm able to pump out another four or five reps, well, those are automatically effective reps, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of skipping that need to, for the fatigue again, and that's where the time efficiency standpoint comes yeah. in. So, um, so there's, so yeah, so I, I'd say it, it kind of brings out this idea of effective reps. I, I would say that uh, uh, Ber, um, Berge, uh, Fagerly, um, you know, he does his mile rep things, which is kind yeah, of like a rest reps. pause technique, but it's, it's based on the same concept of effective reps, right? You know? Yep. So. Yep. So if we're required to have a certain number, like a minimum effective dose of effective reps to stimulate hypertrophy, and effective reps are essentially um, the closer we get to failure, the more effective the reps are. How frequently should we hit failure if we're trying to build muscle? So that's a good question. Um, and I think that the answer to that question depends on how you're training. So if you're training with moderately heavy loads, for example, um, you probably don't need to hit failure that often. Maybe your last set or last few sets of, of some exercise. Um, but, you know, you can probably stop a couple reps short of failure and, and you'll be fine, you know, if you're doing multiple sets. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say it's more important to hit failure if your training volume is very low. Um, and when I say low training volume, I don't mean that you're training like a power lifter, but I'd say you're, you're training more in terms of like a hitter or HIT, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, you're just doing, you know, one or two sets to failure of an exercise or whatever. I would say hitting failure is more important there. I'd also say hitting failure, uh, is more important if you're doing high reps, like 20 reps or 30 reps, stuff like that. I think the data is pretty strong that, um, you know, you can't be stopping 10 reps, you know, with a 30 rep max, you can't be stopping at rep 20, you know, and, and expect to get a lot of gains on it. You really got to push to the 30. Um, yeah, yeah. so um, so I'd say that, um, and then, you know, I, it's also going to depend on your training frequency. You know, I think if you're training with a really high frequency, then you probably shouldn't train a failure as often versus if you're low frequency, you know, just do the, the cumulative fatigue. So, yep. uh, so, so my answer is it depends, you know, um, <laughs> depends on your training volume and your training frequency really, um, and your training intensity as far as, as far as the loads you're using. So, yeah, for sure. And there's data that suggests there's a minimum effective dose for the total number of working sets per week and then the maximum of how much volume and how many sets we can perform in a week before we see um, hypertrophy really start to taper off. When devising a program, what's your recommendation for anyone? Where, where do they start? Because there's, such a, there's like a threefold... Uh, genetic component to hypertrophy. Yeah. So, how do we know? Because some people respond fantastic off 10 sets a week for a specific muscle group, and then others really need to get that 20, 25, 30. So, how do you how do you advise people go about it? Well, I would say that um, it's better to start off on the lower end. It's it's a lot easier to, you know, if you're not improving and you're on the lower end, then you can always bump up. But you know, if you go too high you know, you risk injury and stuff like that. And then, then, um, so I'd say it's better to start off the low end. Um, you know, if you wanted it to be research based, you could start with an average of like, you know, based on the data that, that Brad and I published of around 10 weekly sets per muscle group, you know, for, for optimizing hypertrophy. Now, if you don't care about maximizing hypertrophy, you could actually start lower than that. I mean, you could start, I mean, you could start with as little as three, four or five sets per week if you wanted to, um, 
and you still get some muscle gain out of it. It may not maximize hypertrophy, but uh, so yeah, you'd start with approximately the 10 sets per muscle group per week. And then you just see how you're improving. I mean, if you're not improving, you know, then try upping the volume. Um, uh, and if you are improving, then, you know, stick with it for a while. And then, and then when you start to plateau, then you can start doing things like either upping your volume or, you know, using intensity techniques or something to keep going, you know, until you, until it's time for you to kind of deload and back off. So, so I'd say the 10 is probably a, is, is a good number to start and it doesn't have to be exactly 10. It could be eight, it could be 12, you know, just like around that number. Um, you, you start there. Um, and obviously it's going to be dependent too on someone's available training time and everything like that. I mean, if someone has limited time to train, you know, they may not be able to do 10 per week, um, but, you know, maybe they could do eight per week or maybe they could do a lower volume with drop sets to make it equivalent to 10 per week, you know, something yeah. like that. So, yeah. And when you say 10 sets per week, because I, I know that a lot of people who read the research and then interpret this, they think, oh, if I just do three sets of squats on Monday, three sets on Wednesday and four sets on Saturday, they think that that's 10 sets. Now, does that 10 sets need to be taken close to fatigue? Is there a certain uh, intensity or rate of perceived effort for those sets, or is it simply 10 sets? No, it, it is. Um, you know, the, the studies that we did in our analysis, they took all the sets to either near failure or failure. So, yeah, so they're all, they, they should be challenging. They all should be challenging sets. I mean, that doesn't mean you got to take them all to failure, but they should be reasonably challenging. So, you can't be counting your warm-up sets in those in that yeah. volume. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. And one of my questions I want to ask today, James, is you've competed as a physique athlete, and you yeah. went through the rigors of a contest prep, all the joys that are that come with yeah. that. And did that give you a greater appreciation for applying, you know, the science of fat loss and hypertrophy in a practical sense? Oh yeah, it totally did. I I um. You know, because people have always seen me as knowledgeable and everything, but I wanted to actually show people that I could apply the knowledge as well, you know. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, it was just, it was, a, it, was a, it was a great experience for me uh, just to kind of, um, and, and then it was a great experience for me because I had never really purposely tried to get as lean as possible before. Um, so it was, it was, it was nice to, to kind of go through that experience, especially when you really start to get, you know, close to contest time and you, and you start to, uh, the hunger starts to get to you a little bit and stuff like that. You know, that's, you know, um, uh, to experience all that, to experience the diet face, you know, uh, the drawn, the drawn in cheekbones. I, I know. And I, I gotta tell you, that takes a long time for it to go away. Too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. I was surprised how long that diet face kind of stuck around after I was done. But, uh, um, yeah, so it gave me a lot of appreciation for, for applying the science and, and, um, um, and also, um, it gives, it gives me a better awareness having been through it myself now, you know, seeing what other competitors go through and stuff. It, it's, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I know I'm not just the guy in the, in the lab coat, you know, you know, saying, oh, you need to do this or whatever without yeah. the, ex without any of the experience in doing it, you know, so. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's a fantastic point that there's, you know, like we've mentioned this massive gap between, you know, the, as they say, the librarians and the lifters, you know, the people yeah. reading and the people doing. So I think you bridge that gap, you know, in an exceptional manner and you're now getting into coaching. Yeah. This is a, this is a new endeavor for you. This is very cool. And yeah. Do you think that your contest prep has helped you to a measurable degree in your ability to now coach people? Oh, I think I, I think big time. You know, I don't think um, is that what sparked your you know um, your I guess initiative to start coaching people? Yeah, that was that was part of it. You know, I wanted to um, and and also it's just you know. I wanted to use my knowledge to start helping specific people rather than just kind of delivering science out there, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, and I had had, you know, I'd start, you know, I had a friend that recently before I'd even said that I was going to start coaching, you know, he had asked me, he was like, you know, Hey, are you going to be consulting or whatever? Cause I really need, you know, and it, it, this was a guy not looking to compete. He was just looking to just 
improve his health and lose weight. And I said, yeah, well, I'll be coaching soon. So, um, and, um, so yeah, but I think the contest prep, I think if I hadn't gone through that, I don't think, I mean, I could still coach, but I don't think I'd feel comfortable coaching like people prepping for contests, you know, if I hadn't gone through it myself. Um, you know, I could coach general weight loss, you know, fat, general weight loss, fat loss people, you know, the average guy who's not looking to compete, but whatever, because I've done that before. I've done, you know, I've, I've worked with, you know, Microsoft employees and Costco employees or executives and stuff like that. So, yep. so I've, I've, you know, I've definitely, you know, have a lot of experience helping the overweight and the obese person. Um, yep. uh, but, you know, but now I, I having the experience of going through the, the physique contest myself now, you know, I, I have no problem with, you know, feel comfortable coaching, you know, um, physique athletes, especially I would say, you know, first timers, guys that yeah. are, you know, really that have never done it before, um, that are, that are interested in getting involved. So, yeah, very cool. Very cool. And let's talk about fat loss now. So the, within the context of fat loss, we know the energy balance and the first and second law of thermodynamics, um, what drives weight change? That's, you know, been around for a number of years, as you alluded to earlier. But physiology of fat loss is extremely complex, and there's no single hormone, macronutrient, or anything that is responsible for weight gain or weight loss. Yeah. However, however, what I'd like you to, if you if you can, explain to the listeners is the intricate relationship between energy intake, energy expenditure, and hormone regulation. Yeah. So. Um... Basically, energy intake and energy expenditure are kind of tied together. And what I mean by that is, you know, in general, your body likes to try to stay at the same weight. So it tries to match energy intake and energy expenditure without you even thinking about it. So a perfect example, if you go on a diet, um, your body is going to try to counteract because you're basically now in an energy deficit, you're going to start to lose weight. Your body's going to try to counteract that. And it's going to do it in two ways. It's going to try to decrease your energy expenditure through a decrease in resting metabolic rate and also a decrease in, in physical activity or NEAT, uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Um, and then it's also going to increase your hunger signals to try to, to bring your energy intake back up to try to bring you back into balance. Yeah. Um, so the key is, you know, how do we kind of trick those signals or at least overcome them as much as we can to kind of stay in a deficit and, and without being too hungry and things like that, you know. Um, uh, and likewise, um, it, the opposite is true as well. Um, you know, ideally, at least your body is supposed to, you know, if you're starting to gain weight, it should increase its energy expenditure and decrease appetite. But the yep. problem is, 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 is one of the things is that in humans, um, there's an imbalance between those two mechanisms. Uh, basically, our bodies are are very, very good at detecting if we are in an energy deficit because our bodies don't like to lose weight at all. Um, and, and so it will do everything it can to try to keep you from losing weight. But our bodies are not, at good, and not as good at detecting an energy surplus. Um, yeah. And I, that's why you tend to see weight gain in societies over time uh, because there's an imbalance. Bodies aren't, you know, it's not your body can't detect a surplus, but it's not as good at it. Mm. And it's much more, um, it's much more likely to be overridden by things like, you know, palatability, you know, food palatability and, and food availability and stuff like that. And, and so you have this imbalance that kind of favors weight gain over time versus weight loss. And so that's why we have an obesity problem. So. Yes. Yeah. So on obesity, do people place way too much emphasis on hormones? Because, you know, especially in the lay, you see people looking to, you know, insulin, you see them looking to, you know, thyroid and all these other things. But is it really environment and genetics that is driving the obesity epidemic? Can you shed some light on yeah, that? Yeah, you know, the thoughts? hormones are secondary. I mean, the horm you know, some of the hormones are, are can be considered mechanisms in a sense of, for example, if I decrease my calorie intake and I'm, I go in an energy deficit, there are going to be hormonal changes in my body that are going to drive my hunger, right? Yeah. Um, so, so there are hormones, but we can't focus on the hormones because literally there are hundreds of hormones in your body and other factors, you know, 
there's no single hormone that's responsible for any of those those changes. And so it's a mistake to try to focus on insulin or leptin or whatever. Um, Really, the the master regulator of your body fat is your brain, really. Um, You know, everything feeds back on your brain. I mean, it's your your brain controls your body fat levels, basically. And um, and so so it, it doesn't make sense to focus on the hormones because um, again, there's there's too many there's way too many factors that are going on simultaneously. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you can't look at you know one you know let's say one hormone goes up or one hormone goes down, um, but there are literally maybe five other hormones that are changing along with it that may be counteracting that hormone or yeah. maybe yeah. enhancing the effects of that hormone. And so you can't, you can't isolate it. You know, the hormones in your body don't operate in a vacuum. And yeah. so that's why it's a mistake to focus on, on those things. It's, um, you have to focus on the things that you truly can control. And, yeah. oh, that's, that's the, you know, environment around you to an extent. I mean, obviously you can't totally control your environment, but, um, but you can control, you know, the, the food in your house and, you know, things like that. You can control your activity levels to a point. Um, and, and so those are the things that we can control and the hormones will take care of themselves, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, unless you're, unless you, you know, you, you truly have, you know, hypothyroidism or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. but then, you know, you get that stuff taken care of with a doctor and you're still, you're still in the same boat as far as, you know, the things that you need to do if you're trying to lose body fat. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a brilliant answer, and I think you'll you'll have an appreciation for dealing with the general public and you know the obesity epidemic that we do face uh, worldwide is something that is extremely multifaceted. But can people actually lose weight with just diet and exercise? Because we see so many obese people. So the context of obesity, they they just don't seem to understand or grasp calorie deficit exercise and it doesn't work for them because their environment is driving weight gain. How do we combat this as practitioners? Uh, that's, that's a really good question. And you know what, it's going to, obviously I think it's going to vary from one person to the next. Um, cause yeah, we can't, you know, our environment is what it is. I mean, there's, you know, uh, the high calorie foods, the, the highly palatable foods, restaurants, things like that, those things aren't going away. Um, and so we have to, um, you know, it's not just a matter of, you know, if you've got, you know, someone who's overweight and obese and they've been, let's say they've successfully lost weight, you know, now the challenge is keeping it off and, you know, how do they do that? And and part of it is still going to be diet and activity. Um, but there's also going to be the, you know, other challenges that go along with that, you know, self-monitoring over time, you know. Um, there's, there's lots of good data on self-monitoring, you know, if people, people that regularly weigh themselves, um, usually do better at long-term, you know, weight maintenance than people that don't, um, people that kind of track their calorie intake. And I don't mean you got to track your macros all the time, but, but people that, that at least kind of do that tend to statistically do better because they have an awareness of what's going on. Um, um, so there's. There, there's so many, and there's a lot of nuances to it too. You know, I mean, um, you know, let's say you know somebody might be in a work environment where it's very, very challenging for them. You know, um, maybe maybe there's people at work they're constantly bringing in donuts every day or something like that. I mean, I mean, there's all kinds of challenges that that people face like that, and and I think they have to be dealt with on an individual level on, on as far as how how people can. Um, um, how can people can deal with that thing? I, you know, I think over the long term, I think that's why I think for most people, flexible dieting approaches tend to work best because they're the most realistic, you know, mm. to be able to sustain over a long period of time. Um, but even a flexible dieting approach still requires some still requires awareness of what you're doing and what you're eating. And, you know, and whether that's through tracking or, or some other mechanisms that you got to use to kind of monitor yourself, you know, it's, it's something you got to do. You know, one thing, one thing, you know, uh, when I used to work in the, 
uh, when I used to be the research guy for this um, um, weight management program for Microsoft employees, yeah. Um, you know, we would tell we would tell their clients that you know you are always this is something you're always going to have to basically kind of work at for the rest of your life. You know, mm. I mean, you're not you, you can't just you know do your diet and exercise, lose the weight, and then think everything's going to be okay. You know, you're always going to have to you, you're 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 going to have to work at it. You know, and and you know what you're. Um, you're, you're, you're not going to be like the skinny guy. You're never going to be like the skinny guy who seems like he can eat whatever he wants and never gains weight. You're just never going to yeah. be like that. And, and you have to be aware of that, you know? Um, you know, and so, so we would teach the people that, that say, Hey, you know, this is, this is a lifestyle change. This is not just a temporary thing that we have to do here. Um, and, and, you know, we have to build habits that, that you're going to be able to sustain and adhere for, for the long run and not, not just the short run. Yeah, so. for sure. And that, yeah, that brings oh, so many uh, other topics of discussion into play when we talk about obesity, doesn't it? But touching, yeah. on, what, touching on what you said then um, about, you know, a flexible diet working for people um, because it allows them, you know, greater adherence typically and less restriction and rigidity which is one of the drivers of weight gain now i see a lot of coaches spit out calorie macronutrient targets to obese people and extremely overweight people do you think that a simpler approach like dietary heuristics is far more advisable for somebody who's overweight where their health is potentially at risk is that a case yeah, where I... you would where you would advise like a rigid clean eating you know diet to make sure that you get their health right first? Because uh, if a future macro is a learning curve. Yeah, you know, um, what I will tell you is that, um, you know, in the uh, obesity management clinic that I was a research guy for, we, um, we would actually start the clients off on a diet that was, you know, I would say quote unquote clean, um, you know, a lot of just lean protein, um, I mean, we had the clients track, but they weren't tracking every macro, I think, if I recall correctly. We just had them tracking, I think, calorie intake and, and estimating their protein intake, I think, if I recall correctly, and their fat intake. Um, and, the, you know, the carb intake would kind of take care of itself. But, uh, but we would teach the, the, them heuristics as far as, um, you know, how to structure their plate, for example. So, you know, a three ounce portion of lean meat is about the size of a deck of cards, for example, things like that, you know, um, kind of doing your plates in thirds, you know, one third protein, you know, one third vegetables and one third carbs or something like that, you know, kind of doing things like that. Um, and, uh, um, you know, t teaching them the foods that, 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 they, that they could emphasize, you know. And so, yeah, it, it would the, the diet would start off relatively clean, in a sense, and then over time, um, we would kind of gradually kind of reintroduce other stuff back in. And and so that was just it was to kind of number one, it was just to really get their weight loss started. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's really motivating, especially for someone who's overweight and obese. Yeah. Um, and that can be a really important factor is just that initial because because they have so much to lose. It's really easy to get them losing at first. Um, yeah. and, and that can be motivating for them. So, um, and then you gradually reintroduce the other stuff as, as time goes on. So, so yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, for the overweight obese person, um, there's, there probably is an advantage to introducing a somewhat clean eating style rather than a, you know, if it fits your macros approach. Mm. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you don't, there's still no flexibility there. Um, but maybe at first, when you first start out, there might be a little bit less flexibility, and then you kind of, you kind of become a little bit more flexible as time goes on, as they as they kind of learn the ropes, you know. So, yeah. and I think that's something a lot of coaches definitely over uh, overlook when they're trying to be quote unquote evidence based. Um, yeah, yeah. And obviously, you know, formal exercise and diet have their place in a fat loss program, and. One of the most game-changing, revolutionary sorry, uh, moments for me as a practitioner was seeing you present at the Bropocalypse on non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That, 
quite literally opened up my mind to a whole different realm of you know coaching people for fat loss. Can you explain to the listeners the role of NEAT in uh, fat loss? Yeah, so basically what NEAT is, is um, it's basically um, all your, your physical activity, energy expenditure that doesn't include your formal exercise. And that's everything from when you wake up in the morning and walk to the bathroom to um, to moving your mouth as you talk to, to every, every little component of physical activity throughout your day. And uh, that really plays a powerful role in weight regulation because, I mean, you know, something that a lot of trainers seem to forget is that, you know, let's say, let's say you're working with clients in person. You might see this client, what, three days a week maybe for an hour? I don't know, something like that. Um, but there's, there's another, you know, 15 hours out of the day that you're not seeing them um, and you don't know what they're doing. And the thing is, is that, you know, you can only expend so much energy in an exercise session. There's a limit to how much you can expend. And if your client is basically sitting around the rest of the day when you're not seeing them, they're basically kind of canceling out the benefits of the exercise session by reducing their energy expenditure or their NEAT levels. So, because yeah. um, remember, you know, one of the reasons why we exercise, um, I mean, obviously we do resistance training to maintain lean mass and things like that and, and improve strength and muscle. But another reason why we, we, we do exercise like cardio or even resistance training is we're trying to up our daily energy expenditure. But if you're going to, cancel that out by sitting around the rest of the day, well, then you're, then you've kind of shot yourself in the foot. And so, um, so that's why need is very, very important. Um, and there's so much, I mean, like I said, you know, in that presentation, I give so much data that shows how powerful a role it plays in weight regulation. Um, it plays a role in people's tendencies to gain weight or not. Mm. Um, also plays a role in people, whether, you know, that have lost weight, whether they tend to gain the weight back or not. So, um, it's it's very very important. Yeah, for sure. And as we get leaner and lose body fat and body weight, a number of adaptations take place that slow down our overall metabolic rate. And uh, NEAT seems to be one of those uh, adaptations that gets quite a bit of a hit. Um, and can you explain how NEAT is affected as body weight changes and the magnitude of that? Yeah. So so actually, um, NEAT. You know, we all know that metabolism decreases, your metabolic rate goes down, but it's actually not by a huge amount when you're dieting. Um, you know, might amount to 100 calories per day or so. You know, it's nothing. It's not like it's, it's some huge insurmountable number. Yeah. But your NEAT can go down by actually a lot. And there's a, there's a number of studies that have seen NEAT decrease with weight loss by, you know, 500 calories per day or something like that. You know, I mean, that's, a, that's an entire exercise session in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, and there's data to show that that is actually sustained, um, even if you keep the weight off for like a year, um, that your NEAT levels are still kind of down. So, um, so that so that's your again, it's your body trying to trying to stop weight loss and trying to get the weight back by by yeah. decreasing your 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 NEAT levels. Um, was basically your kind of your your what we'd also call it spontaneous physical activity. Um, and, and a lot of times it's not even, it's kind of unconscious. A lot of people aren't even aware that it's happening. Mm. So that's why coaching clients on NEAT and using devices like uh, activity monitors like the Fitbit or, or even just simple pedometers can be really useful. Um, you know, one thing, one thing that I do with my clients and we also did in the weight management program uh, is – um, we would have our clients wear, you know, activity monitors or, or at the time it was just pedometers, you know, the Fitbit and stuff wasn't around back then, but, but we, we would have them only wear it when they weren't exercising, mm-hmm. um, because we know what they're doing for their exercise. We don't need to yeah. track that. Right. Um, yeah. we want to know what they're doing when they're not around, when we don't see them. And so we would have them track basically their neat levels with devices like that. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I think that can be really important um, you know, with my coaching clients now, you know, I, I, I actually don't want them to wear a device, um, during their exercise session because I want to know what, you know, yeah. to me, the device, the usefulness of the device is to track neat levels and not necessarily your energy expenditure with it for the exercise session itself. So, yeah, 
fantastic. And that's, yeah, really good practical advice for people wanting to, yeah, start monitoring how much energy they're expending outside of their training. And outside of the context of um, body weight changes affecting NEAT, how does for formal high-intensity activity affect uh, non-exercise and spontaneous activity post the training bout? So uh, the data shows that it, it seems to vary. Um, some people, it doesn't seem to impact them that much, but then there are other people that may be very, very fatigued, mm. and then they end up sitting around the rest of the day. So it's something I think uh, trainers and coaches need to be aware of. You know, If you've got your clients doing some really intense exercise, like some really intense interval training, I mean, if they're if you're totally just wiping them out, yeah, and then they go home and then they just sit around because they're too exhausted, yeah. um, then it's you, you've they, you've kind of done them a disservice in terms of fat loss because because basically they're going to cancel out the benefits of the exercise session by being less by basically dramatically reducing their energy expenditure the rest of the day. So so I think coaches and and um, need to be very aware of how hard they are training their clients, you know, especially from a fat loss perspective, space. you know, if, yeah. if you're training for performance, that's a, that's, that's a totally different thing. Yeah. Put your feet up but and from relax. From purely a fat loss perspective, when, when our goal is to increase energy expenditure, that's, that's really our ultimate goal. Mm. Um, we don't want to do anything that actually may go against that goal. And so working your clients too hard may actually go against that versus actually helping you. So fantastic. I think that is something that, so many trainers uh, don't understand. They think that the training session needs to be balls to the wall um, yeah. and, and don't actually take into consideration what happens after the training session. And you spoke about how um, when we do cardio or training, how our you know, body adapts. Mitochondrial efficiency is something that affects our energy expenditure as well. As we, for example, if you advise to a client to walk to work and that's a part of their, you know, spontaneous uh, activity, yeah. how does the body accommodate and can you explain the mechanisms behind how it does accommodate and then the magnitude of the accommodation so the decrease in the calorie expenditure over time? Yeah, so, so one of the things that will happen is, you know, when we talk about NEAT going down with weight loss, there's basically... Um, there's, there's three ways that that happens. Number one, which you don't really have any control over is basically as you lose weight, you've got less weight to carry around. Right. And so automatically you're going to expend less energy. I mean, it's, it's, it's like if you had a 50 pound bag on your back and you suddenly take that bag off, you're going to expend less energy moving around. Um, that, um, there's nothing you can do about that. That's just a natural, that's what naturally happens as with anyone that loses weight. Yeah. The second way is the, the decrease in need that we see. Um, this is an actual decrease in movement, spontaneous movement um, that has nothing to do with, you know, having less weight to move around. Um, and there's data that shows that that obviously that decreases as well. And, you know, and that's where we have to have the have the conscientiousness of, of deliberately increasing our need, you know. Um, yeah. And then there's a third component which is an increase in efficiency. And what I mean is that basically you expend less energy to do the exact same movement. Mm -hmm. um, your, your body somehow becomes more efficient um, to do the exact same thing. So if I go and reach for a pen um, or something, my body actually expends a little bit of energy doing that same movement um, than it did before. Um, and that component, there's really not a whole lot we can do about that. Um, but it's not a huge component. It's probably okay. probably maybe a quarter of the reduction of, in right. meat that you see comes from that. Yeah. So um, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. Um, um, you know, the biggest impact is just the decrease in movement overall. Unfortunately, people do have the choice to to actually they they can actually do something about that. So yeah, interesting. Yeah. So meat is a massive uh, component to fat loss and. It wouldn't be a James Krieger interview without some carbohydrate talk, would it? <laughs> so, I wanted to talk a little bit about the nuances of uh, carbohydrates because we know that carbohydrates aren't fattening. We know that sugar is not fattening. And anybody yeah. listening to this podcast will, will know about that. So, I wanted to discuss some more in-depth 
uh, carbohydrate topics. Um, and the first one is, does the type of carbohydrate you consume impact thermic effect of feeding to a measurable degree to influence your food choices in a fat loss phase? Uh, your thermic effect of feeding, not really. I mean, it's not going to be... Here's the deal with the thermic effect of feeding. Really, people shouldn't worry about it because it's such a small component of your energy expenditure. Um, it's, you know, I mean, we're talking like, we're talking like in some cases just changing your thermic effect of feeding by like a few calories after a meal. It's some ridiculously small number. So it's it's not something to worry about. I mean, if you really want to impact your thermic effect of feeding, you, you basically should have a high protein intake. Yeah. Um, but you should have that, you know, regardless of the thermic effect of feeding, you should have that anyway because of its effects on satiety and also its effects on, on maintaining muscle mass. So yeah. um, the type of carbohydrate you eat is really not going to have any noticeable impact on thermic effect of feeding at all. Um, uh, not enough to where it really makes a difference. I mean, uh, yeah, it's not something that people need to be concerned about. So Awesome. And... With the different structures of carbohydrates, so mono, di, and polysaccharides, is the structure of the carbohydrate uh, influence satiety to a significant degree? Not, not really. It used to be, you know, people used to believe that you know simple sugars were digested quicker and everything like that, um, but that's actually not true at all. Um, for example. Um, we think of fructose. Fructose is a simple sugar, but it actually has to be metabolized by the liver first, yeah. um, and then it's converted to glucose by the liver, and then it's, then it enters the bloodstream. Um, you know, if you were to look at the, the glycemic index, uh, which is basically a metric for for how quickly a food gets metabolized into sugar and enters the bloodstream, mm -hmm. um, some some foods that are high in simple sugars are actually low glycemic, and some yeah. foods that are actually high in complex carbohydrates are actually high glycemic. And so the structure of the carbohydrate really is not really very important. Uh, you know, it, people used to think that it was, but it's not. So, yeah, awesome. And when when we're trying to lose fat, you know, we understand the importance of a high protein diet. And beyond a certain point, any additional protein is simply excreted or converted to glucose anyway. But is uh, increasing protein to a point where carbohydrates are reduced does that have an impact on meat there's not really much good data that on it that i know of um trying to remember if there was a study i don't know if there was a study that looked at that or not i'm trying to remember from my presentation whether i mentioned a study like that i, I will say there's you know if there has been any research it's very preliminary and hasn't you know we don't know I don't know if, if a high-protein diet is really going to impact NEAT um, at all. Um, I do know uh, from from my presentations on sugar and everything, uh, there was one study that compared a, um, a low-carb diet to a high-carb diet, and they found no differences in, in NEAT levels in, in that right. sense. Yep. You know, so um, – and then uh, if I think correctly, um, you know, if you look at um, – uh, uh, why is his name eluding me now? Um, uh, he's a famous me metabolism researcher uh, who's really got a lot of attention the past few years because basically he kind of debunked some of Gary Taubes' stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know why my mind isn't isn't is is on the tip of my tongue, but anyway, but anyway, he did some research, some highly controlled metabolic ward research. Um, and they also didn't really find any differences in spontaneous physical activity between yeah. like low and high carbohydrate or low and high sugar, things like that. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And artificial sweeteners is something that have really come to the forefront of the research, uh, in the last decade, simply due to the, uh, amounts that we consume. Yeah. Do people need to be concerned? N no, not no, not at all. I don't. I don't see any. I don't see any data to, to indicate that artificial sweeteners should be of any concern for any for for the vast majority of people. You know, I mean, mm. unless you're someone with phenylketonuria and you've got to limit your phenylalanine intake. You know, yeah. um, 
or if you're the very rare person, you know, there's a little bit of data that's, that's shown that people get headaches, headaches from aspartame, yeah. but it's, it's, the data is, is, is questionable, but you know what, if, if you feel like you get headaches from it, then you know what, then you can avoid it. But the vast yeah. majority of people, there's, there's no reason to avoid artificial sweeteners. Um, I, I eat them all the time and I have no worries about not consuming them at all, yeah. you know? Yeah. So. And there's obviously two um, contrasting, you know, I guess goals when it comes to, you know, why we eat and choose certain food. People either choose a food for the health benefits or they choose a food for, um, you know, their weight loss. I guess they're tied into one another. But to artificial sweeteners, you've done some uh, reviews on studies for gut flora. Do they inhibit fat yeah. loss to a measurable degree? Do they influence fat loss or gut flora? Or so both. Do they inhibit fat loss and do they impact oh. our gut flora? Yeah, no. They uh, number one, no. They don't inhibit fat loss. I mean, if you look at all the randomized control trial, uh, the thing is, this idea that artificial sweeteners might inhibit fat loss has come from observational research because um, there's data that shows that people who tend to eat more artificial sweeteners tend to be more obese, but that's kind of a chicken or egg problem there. Mm. The thing is, is that chances are usually people that are obese or overweight have been trying to lose weight, so they consume artificially sweetened products, but it's not that the artificially sweetened products cause them to be obese. And, um, and the thing is, if you look at all the randomized control trials on artificial sweeteners, they pretty much unanimously show that they actually aid with with fat loss and weight loss. So, so no, they aren't going to actually inhibit weight loss. Um, there's been some concerns about gut flora because it's been found in some research that they actually have an impact on, on, on some of the gut flora. Uh, um, but, but the these, thing is, these studies were on saccharin, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was one that was on aspartame, but yeah, there were some rodent studies that were some interesting rodent studies that basically found that uh, with um, with these artificial sweeteners, they found an impact on gut flora that actually then then impacted um, the rodents' um, uh, tendency for to gain gain body fat and everything. Um, and really, what what it was showing is that it impacted basically the 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 um, the bacteria in the gut, so that actually, basically, what you would you basically con, um, absorb more sugar from the food that you're eating, you know, because yeah. not all, not yeah. a, you don't absorb all the food that you eat. Some of it doesn't make it through the gut, and, and you basically poop it out, right? Yeah. Um, well, what they found is that the artificial sweeteners would actually um, change the bacteria in the gut, so that now the bacteria um, there were, um, would actually help break down the food more. And so you'd absorb a little bit more, more yeah, food. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, that was based on rodent research. The thing is, is that that doesn't matter because if I'm consuming artificial sweeteners to eat less calories, the less calories I eat is, are way going to override any yeah. impact on, on, on glucose uptake. You know, if there's yeah. some enhancement of glucose uptake, right? Yeah. Um, so, no, it's not going to cause me to gain weight. Um, you know, all it's going to do is it's going to enhance, glu you know, at the most, it's going to enhance glucose absorption in the intestine a little bit. But again, that's going to be way more than counteracted by, by the fact that I'm eating less calories with artificially sweetened products. So, um, so really there's no reason to be concerned about the gut flora, the impacts on gut flora, because we know from a holistic perspective, or I just didn't say, I don't like that word holistic, really from a, from a whole dietary perspective that, um, artificial sweeteners in the, in when incorporated into the context of an entire diet, um, they're not. It's, it's not going to be any cause for concern. So yeah, yeah, and obviously, most of the studies are done, or all of the studies are done on rats, and there's a lot of drawbacks uh, to that in terms of how we make inferences to our recommendations to clients and whatnot. But what would be the uh, safe dose of artificial sweeteners per day if there was any form of guidelines to that? Yeah, well, you'd have to – it actually – it's different for each sweetener. But there, there's what we call an acceptable daily intake um, that's been established based on research. Um, so you'd have to look at what the individual was for each sweetener. But the thing is, is that um, 
your chances of ever exceeding the ADI are, you know, even if you consumed a lot of artificially sweetened products are, are minimal at best. And we also need to consider that there's actually a, there's, there's an additional safety fold factor built into that ADI. So the way that they establish it is they basically, they take the highest dose that's been shown to be harmful or, or to show some sign of bad effect on rodents. Um, or I should say the highest, not some, I should say the highest dose that's been found to be safe in rodents, right? Yeah. And then they divide that by 100 and then, then they make that, okay, that's will be the dose for humans. So there's right. already a huge safety factor built into it. And so yeah, even yeah, if you yeah. do go over the ADI a little bit, there's, there's nothing to be concerned about. Awesome. And for those people when they're in a fat loss phase and they're wanting to measure their progress, even if they are in a gaining phase and they want to measure how their body composition is changing, DEXA scans uh, have obviously got a number of flaws uh, built into them. So how do you yeah. recommend people measure their progress from week to week and why would they not want to invest in a DEXA scan? Well, the thing is, sorry, I got to plug in here, but um, all good. Uh, I'm uh, running out of battery power. So so the, um, the thing is, is that uh, the error rate for DEXA scans is... Um, is much higher than any change you're going to see over such a short period of time. I mean, all body compositions, uh, testing, you know, DEXA, hydrostatic weighing, whatever, um, they're all estimates. You're not actually measuring your body fat. I mean, the only way to measure by your body fat is through dissection, obviously, you know, so, um, so they're all estimates, uh, used to design, um, or, or basically we take something that correlates with body fat and then, uh, measure that and then estimate what we think your body fat is. Um, but there's a certain error rate associated with that estimate. Um, and even with something like DEXA, you know, the, the error rate can be, you know, um, three, four, five percent within an, a single individual. Um, and, you know, it can take weeks and weeks just to see that level of change in your body fat percentage. So, yeah. whatever technique you're going to use, you need to, um, you need to make sure that you allow a long enough period of time to where any change that you expect to see is bigger than the error rate in the technique that you're using. Yeah. So. Right. And what are your uh, practical measures of body compositional change with your clients? So practically, I mean, to me, I just like, I like things like just waist circumference, things like that. I mean, I mean, you're going to get just as good, you know, I'm not as concerned about the body fat percentage. I just want to know, are your measurements going down? Is your waist size going down? If your waist size is going down, you're losing body fat, period. I mean, yeah. I mean that's probably one of the best metrics there. For women, you know, hip size, um, you know, if those metrics are going down, um, you know, and if you're, uh, you know, and if you're maintaining your strength in the gym, um, you know, those are going to be your best metrics for tracking change over time, over the short run. And then, and then you can get your body comp done every, you know, 12 weeks or something like that, you know, to get, to get a, a, an estimate that way. But I mean, I know when I did my contest prep, you know, it was months between, uh, body, be, between body fat tests for me, you know? Yeah. So, um, it, you know, I basically just used, um, I used my body weight, uh, my measurements and and my strength in the gym is basically for assessing my progress. So, yeah. and they're great metrics to use, and I think people pay way too much attention to uh, DEXA scans and body fat percentages. But my final question for you, James, uh, is what are your predictions over the next two to three years for the science community as it relates to fitness body comp? What do you see to happen in the near future? I think you're going to get more, I think you're going to see um, more research looking at individual responses. I think you're, you're already starting to see that in some journal articles where they actually show the individual responses rather than just the averages. I think that's, I think, you're, I think you're going to see that trend continue. I think that's going to be really important because we're getting more and more of an appreciation for individual responses um, to various, you know, training and dietary interventions. So I think you're really going to see more of that. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more cool resistance training research. Um, I've been really impressed about the stuff that's been coming out the past year, and and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more stuff. 
So I think you're going to see a lot of stuff uh, along those lines um, over the next few years. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's where I can kind of see things going uh, um, uh, uh, from here on out. So awesome. And what's next for James Krieger? You've brought back Weightology Weekly. You're starting your coaching services. There's there's been a big spark in your motivation. What's next? Uh, what's next? Um, I've got uh, more talks lined up this year. I'm giving a talk in, here in the U.S. in Spokane, Washington in March. Um, I just got invited to do a talk in the Netherlands yeah. uh, in June. And then I'm going back to the uh, um, AFPT conference again in Norway, so I'll be speaking there later this year. Yeah. Um, got more research in the pipeline. I've, I've just ran some more stats. Uh, of, I'm collaborating with a ton of people lately. Um, guys like Stu Phillips, uh, you know, I've, I helped collaborate on a paper that that's that's in that's in uh, been submitted for publication just recently. I just ran some more stats for for a study that Brad's been working with on. Um, uh, also, just submitted the stats for a meta analysis, another meta analysis that we just did. So more research in the pipeline yeah. coming. So um, so yeah, so so definitely be on the lookout for some of that stuff. Um, uh, down the road so awesome well James thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the JPS podcast guys make sure that you check out Weightology Weekly it's a fantastic uh, resource for anyone looking to find the latest research and how to practically apply that I'll put a link down below James thank you very much and we'll speak to you next time alright thanks for having me thank you James.